continue our look at Matthew. Uh, we're in part two of Tested and True. So we look at Jesus in the wilderness and the temptations uh, that he faced. In the wilderness, uh, a book I read over the past week, um, dealing with the temptations of Christ, Russell Moore, Tempted and Tried. Uh, pretty good look at the temptations of Christ. One of the problems I faced was that on the second temptation of Christ, which is the third in Luke, but the second in Matthew, it's like the commentators are all over the place, and so I was talking to my wife about it, I'm like, I don't know how to go forward with this, and he didn't make it easy, he was a little bit verbose on it, uh, but he does a good job of looking desires, and really when we consider the temptations that we face, we have desires, many of them are God-given and good, but sin twists it, and, and how do we look at those desires, and do we realize that the desires that God's created within us all point to something greater than that desire. They point to Christ, okay, and how Christ alone can satisfy us. So, you know, it's, it's a good book if you have extra time on your hands. All right, so as we look at the text today, as Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, I don't want to skip past really the theological purpose of Matthew, including the temptations and also the other gospel writers, of including the temptations of Christ in their gospels. Right? When the gospel writers wrote the gospels, they kind of pick and chose you know, the, the stories they would include and the order they would put them in uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously. This is an important uh, moment in the life of Christ as the Son of God. He's been declared Son of God. Right? He came out, he was baptized in the Jordan River. You know, this is my beloved Son. All right? I'm pleased with him. And he comes out of the Jordan having been baptized and he goes into the wilderness He's going to be tested by God, tempted by Satan. So Jesus, the true Son of God, fully obeyed the Father. He submitted his will to the will of the Father at the beginning, right at the end. Not my will, but your will be done. Fully obeyed the Father, validating his role as the Messiah and the King of the Jews. Last week I mentioned that it wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East for those who would be king to undergo some kind of an extreme test to prove their worthiness as the next king. I also mentioned last week that there is this parallel that's going on as we look at the life of Jesus, because he is the true son. He is, in a sense, the true Israel. And so Matthew is paralleling for, he's he's giving us a parallel of Jesus and Israel, the nation of Israel. Right? The nation of Israel was birthed out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They were birthed out of water, okay? and they go into the wilderness, and they're tested, and they failed miserably. Jesus was baptized, went into the wilderness, tested, and he's victorious. And so we see here that Jesus is true Israel. He's the true Son of God. Now, as we consider Jesus going into the wilderness, sometimes it's hard for us to go, okay, Jesus did that. How does this really apply to me? And that's really been the burden for me as a communicator. Like, how do I make this relevant to you? We need to understand the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are, in a sense, in the wilderness, right? Because placing your faith in Jesus Christ is this spiritual experience where you are taken, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness. You're transferred out of the world into the kingdom of the son that he loves. There is this spiritual transference that occurs. You're no longer, uh, you know, you're no longer, you're no longer in the world, as it were, spiritually. You're now in Christ. 
And as one whose citizenship is in heaven, okay, that's, that's your home, you're in this wilderness of the world, right? We live in a sin-cursed world that's not a friend to Jesus Christ. And so throughout our lives as Christians in the wilderness, we're being, what, tested. God sends trials into our lives. He doesn't tempt us. We learned that last week. Right? Satan tempts us. We're tempted by our flesh, our own desires. But we're in a wilderness experience. So let's read the text here. Again, and then uh, the way I have it set up, if you were here last week, is I'm making points about how we as Christians fight temptation, how we view temptation and fight temptation based on this text. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was compelled into the wilderness. He was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the true Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and he will lift, up, he will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. It is said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and attended to them. Again, the theological literary purpose of this text is to show us that Jesus Christ is validated as the true Son of God and Messiah through his obedience to the Father as he's tested in the wilderness. That's the theological literary purpose of the text. It's not written that, you know, okay, guys, as you read the gospel, this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, I want to tell you how you're supposed to fight temptation. I mean, that's a practical outworking of it, and that's where we're going to focus things today. But I'm trying to tell you, this is the main purpose of the text according to Matthew. What I want you to understand today is this, is that Jesus overcame sin's temptation, and so can you as you submit to the Word of God. Each one of us, if you're a born-again believer, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. God's invested in you. Okay, so get the power of God in you. Okay? You have the Spirit of Christ in you. You have His Word. Then you can overcome any temptation that comes your way. It's possible. Now, we know from our Christian experience that it doesn't happen all the time, right? It's very hard to fight temptation sometimes. But we want to look at what the text has for us and understand how we can fight temptation. So, as we consider Jesus' temptation... One, the main way or the way that Jesus' temptation is different than ours is that Jesus never sinned. He didn't have a sin nature. Okay, the Father tested him by sending him into the wilderness. Satan gladly participated in that, offering these temptations to Jesus. And there's also the temptation of the material world. Jesus fully obeyed. Whereas us, we have that white box there, that all nasty sin nature. And I still, every time I talk about the sin, you're like, God, why did you leave that there? Wouldn't life be so much easier if we didn't have a sin nature? 
But nonetheless, we have one. So Jesus is tempted from the outside, but we're told in James that we have this inward proclivity, this inward affinity, this inward uh, desire to do what is wrong. Okay, that's from our sin nature. And, And so as we look at temptation, right, we can't say that God is tempting us. God sends tests and trials into our life. He has ordained temptation, but he doesn't himself tempt us. Okay, he doesn't do that. So I just want to kind of get that framework out of the way. Now, last week as we looked at this text, okay, we saw that everyone experiences temptation. Jesus experienced it. We experienced it. It's common to man. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells, it, tells us that. There's no temptation that's common. It's common to all of us. We have struggles. We have temptation, right? I broke them down into three categories based on 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, right? The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those things from the world, these three common areas of temptation. Everybody experiences temptation. Temptation, though, often comes when we feel spiritually strong. And I gave you some examples of people who were kind of in a spiritual good point, and then they were tempted, right? And so Jesus comes out of the water. This is my beloved son. Woo! After 30 years of obscurity, heaven opens up and speaks, breaks into the time-space continuum, and Jesus is declared the Son of God, the Messiah. And then he goes into the wilderness, and granted, he is 40 days without food. Okay, that kind of weakens you just a little bit. Thirdly, temptation is ordained by God for a purpose. Again, God doesn't tempt any man. James is clear on that. We're tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts, and Satan is glad to participate in that. But God, in his eternal decree, has, he's decreed that we would face temptations, just like he decreed that the Son would face temptation. There's a difference here. I hope you can see the difference. Because God has said it will happen doesn't mean he necessarily causes it to happen. There's a second, there are two secondary agents there. We call this non-constraining secondary causation, right? There are these two secondary agents, your flesh and Satan in the world. Ordained by God for a purpose. So I gave you two purposes. God doesn't ordain temptation, okay? All right, but he does it for your good if you're his child, and he does not do it personally, right? So the first one was, he does not personally tempt anyone, but he does it for your own good if you are his child. And I can say that to those of you who are his child. I can't say that to those who are outside of Christ. If you're facing temptations, okay, you're in the world, you're held captive by Satan to do his will. John calls you a child of the devil, okay? Uh, if you're a child of God, though, I can say it without equivocation. I can say it with 100% confidence that every single temptation that you face in this life has been ordained by God for your good. Because in this spiritual wilderness that you're in, okay, he is he's transforming you into the beautiful image of his son, Jesus Christ. So we saw that God ordains temptation, but he doesn't personally tempt anyone. He does it for our good, and the devil gladly intervenes, right? We saw last week, we talked about the devil and who he is and what he does, and he's glad to be a part of what's going on in temptation. Now, today we're going to look at the three temptations of Jesus Christ here given to us in Matthew. Again, Jesus is tempted along the way in his ministry after this, but these are the ones that we see in the wilderness. 
And when temptation comes, so, all right, this is the practical point. When temptation comes, we must submit to God and resist the devil. What did Jesus do? He submitted to God. He resisted the devil. Then we see in verse 11 what happens. The devil, he says, oh, I'm, I'm done here, okay. There's nothing else I can do. That's what we're told to do as well. And again, these temptations fall along three lines. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, that's why the author of Hebrews can say that Jesus was tested at all points just like us. He was tempted at all points just like us. So let's look at these three temptations. And I've given kind of an overall title to each temptation. And the first temptation, and it falls under the lust of the flesh, is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. We struggle with self-sufficiency in that, in that we want to take things that God has not ordained for us at that moment. God, if I want this, I need this, I can't believe that you can't see that I don't need this. I mean, look, oh great God of heaven, can you see that I need this? You're not going to give it to me? I'm going to take it for myself. I'm going to be self-sufficient. So this first temptation, again, after Jesus is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's probably an understatement, right? That's an understatement. You guys, you know, a sermon that lasts 45 minutes, and you guys are ready to keel over. You're starving to death. Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights without food. And I mentioned last week, if you look at the account of Moses up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, he doesn't even drink, okay? God was supernaturally sustaining him that way. So this temptation here, we see it. The tempter came to him, the tempter is Satan, and he said, if you are the son of God, right? So that's the deal. The father has just said, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. And and then Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and Satan says, oh, so you're the son of, are you really the son of God? If you're really the son of God, then... And each temptation involves that phrase, if. If you're really the son of God, then tell these stones, and I'm sure there's lots of stones. If you go visit Israel, you go in the wilderness, there's stones everywhere. It's a very rocky place. Tell these stones to become bread. So, so what, is, what is Satan really saying? He's saying, you're the son of God and you're hungry? That doesn't make sense, right? God's the king of the universe. Most princes... If their father is the king, they're not going to walk around hungry. And God's declared you to be the son of God. Why is it that he hasn't fed you yet? Hey, look, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God was sending out manna from heaven. And you're, you still don't have something to eat? You mean to tell me he's not feeding his own son? So, so Satan here is trying to, to question, gets Jesus to question the goodness of his father, the care of his father. You know, and I think underlying, it's not said in the text here, I think and I'm going to make this point in a minute, is, is that in view is the fact that, hey, Jesus is here on mission. His baptism represents his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Everything points towards that climactic moment when Christ is on the cross. And, and, and okay, Satan's saying to Jesus, so he said you're going to be crucified and and you're going to rise from the dead? Are you really sure? Because he's not even feeding you right now. So if he's not going to feed you right now, are you really sure that he's going to come through on his word to raise you from the dead? 
What's Jesus' response? It's obedient trust in the word of God. All right, a little spoiler alert. This is Jesus' response every time. This is what is written, and I'm going to do it. This is what's written, and I'm going to do it. Now, let's just dispel the notion there's some kind of a, a superstitious, like, okay, if I just throw out the right scripture verse from the Bible, then boom, okay, it's all going to, all the problems are going to go away. That's not what's being taught here, okay? Right now, there are places where it says, okay, you're struggling with, you're tempted to be angry. Well, here's a scripture verse for anger. Well, that's good. We want to hide God's word in our hearts so they won't sin against him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He had God's word in his heart so he wouldn't sin. But there's not this hocus pocus, boom, here's the vast passage of scripture, and Satan just, okay, takes off. It's a little more complex than that. But Jesus submitted his will fully to the will of the Father, and he submitted to the word of God. He answered, it is written, each time, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And again, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He's quoting from from that that moment when God was going to bring his children into the promised land. He's recounting the law, and he's recounting what happened when they were in the wilderness that for 40 years, I fed you with manna from heaven. I fed you. You didn't go hungry. And I tested you, and I tried you to see whether or not what you would keep my commands. He says there at the end, at the bottom of the screen there, he says, I, I humbled you. I sent you into trials. I tested you. I caused you to hunger because I want to teach you a lesson. Right? There's not one trial that you enter as a child of God that God is not teaching you a lesson. So the reason you praise God, you enter into a trial, you're tempted. Praise God, you're working in my life. You're teaching me something. It's not that easy in the moment, right? Something becomes appealing to your eyes, that desire to get back into that sin that you have been freed from, that person's walking up to you that just plucks your last nerve. Praise God, here they come. I can't wait, this is wonderful. God's testing me. But God wants to teach us as he was teaching his son, that his sustaining, powerful word is greater than anything in the universe. Don't you know that nothing exists apart from the word of God? It's the power of God's word that sustains the universe. So the bread, every bread that you eat comes because God's word is powerful. He spoke everything into existence. Jesus Christ is the word. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so Jesus says, look, you know what? Nice try, Satan. Nice try. I trust in the care of my Father. If he can sustain the world with the power of his word, he can sustain me right now, even though I'm very, very hungry. His, obedient, his response was obedient trust in the word of God. Jesus says in John's gospel, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. He goes on in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. This is very food. This is what I'm longing for. That food that we eat, that desire that we have to eat, points to something much greater. And that's the fact that the greater one is the only one who can ultimately satisfy us. 
I mean, that bread can represent any, any desire that you may have that you think you have to satisfy at that moment. And that God-given desire that sin has twisted, that desire given from God is pointing to him, saying, look, I am the one. Look to me. I alone can satisfy you. Our temptation, as we look at Jesus' temptation, is this. Well, God isn't providing well enough for me, so I had no choice but to take matters into my own hands. I mean, I I know it was wrong, but hey, look, what was I going to do? I couldn't get groceries. I couldn't pay for gas. I wasn't sure how to pay for Christmas. Look, I I know I I shouldn't be in this relationship, but how how am I possibly going to be happy outside of this relationship with this person? I know this relationship's wrong. But, you know, I, I had to take my own happiness into my own hands. You might be saying, why is God denying me what I have a right to? Right? Jesus had a right to eat, didn't he? Okay. He had corpuscles flowing through his veins, right? He had blood. He had a heart. He had, I mean, he had a, he had a pancreas. It was wondering, like, where's all the food? I don't need to produce that. I mean, it's like he was just like us, having a body. He needed food. He had a right to eat. Sometimes we feel like, I have a right to this, God. I'm one of your children. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I repented for my sins. I'm on the narrow way, and you're not giving me what I want. And maybe what do you feel like you need? God, if you love me as a child, I'm one of your children. God, if you love me, why won't you give me this thing that I'm praying for? God, why am I still suffering with whatever? Why won't you change my circumstances? Now, it's not wrong to cry out to God. It's wrong to sin to get what you want because you feel like God isn't giving you what you want. That's the issue. The second test, the second test is, is this. It's the pride of life. The pride of life. Now, this is the one that I was struggling with because ultimately Jesus says, when he responds, he says, you know, don't put the Lord your God to the test. I mean, that's, that's, don't test God. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do something when he's ready to do something. We don't test God by just sitting back and saying, okay, God, you said, you know, you, you told me to, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and you're going to add everything I need. God, I'm seeking your kingdom, your righteousness, so... So I'm going to be doing that, and I'm not going to go to work, okay? I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to let you provide food for me, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of do my thing. I'm not, I'm not going to work. I had somebody tell me that one time. Like, I'm going to live like George Mueller. You can Google George Mueller later on. I'm going to live like him. I, that's great. That's admirable. I'm, George Mueller is a great man of faith. But God's also ordained work, friends, okay? So in this passage that we're getting ready to look at next is the pride of life that's testing the Father. And so the devil, he says, okay, I'm going to have to ramp it up a little bit. He took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. So in Herod's temple, the, the, the temple of the Herodian period, that second temple, um, there was this point, uh, it was a colonnade, which is right by, uh, it was on the edge. So, so you've got the Kidron Valley, you've got it basically, it's like a cliff. And on top of this cliff, you've got the temple structure going up. And so Josephus, this guy, he wrote in antiquity, not about antiques, he's, but he wrote a long time ago, and he writes about this, 450-foot drop. That's a long way up. It's a huge drop, way, way up there. 
And history, also extra-biblical literature, tells us that other people have thrown themselves off of that temple area. Simon Magnus is reported to have done that. Like to try to prove that he had supernatural powers, threw himself off the top of the temple, thinking that God was, he was testing God. God's going to keep me from splatting against the ground. So the devil takes him up there to the, the highest point of the temple structure. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now he quotes Psalm 91, which is a beautiful psalm of God's protection. God's protection for his children. I don't have time to read that now. Beautiful psalm. And he kind of misquotes it here in a bad way. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up and strike their hands I'm sorry, they will lift you up in their hands so that, not, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That God's angels are so powerful and so present that if you were to fall off the top of this temple structure, God's not going to let one bone of yours be broken. Right? God said he's going to take care of you. Let's see. Let's put God to the test. And what's, what's the devil really saying here? Now, this is where I was trying to work through, okay, What's, what's really going on here? You know, and I think what's really going on here, after I've studied this, is that the devil's like, look, you came out of the water, and, and God declared you to be his son that he loves. I'm pleased. This is my son. Not many people heard that. You've been living in relative obscurity for the past 30 years. The son of a carpenter. Nasty old Nazareth. You're the Messiah. Come on, don't you want the world to know who you are? You're the son of God. Just think about the glory and the fame that would be yours if you just did this one thing, if you jumped off the top of the temple into the Kidron Valley and the angels came and protected you. Wow, the world would know. All this acclaim, this fame would be yours. Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, the Son of God, then make it easy on everyone. Do something dramatic. Make a name for yourself vindicate yourself, vindicate your identity so that the world really knows who you are. What's Jesus' response? Obedient trust to the word of God. And he says it again. People ever say you're fixated on, you always talk about the Bible. Well, Jesus talked about the Bible all the time, okay? It is written. Jesus answered him. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find this passage, and really it's referring back to Exodus chapter 17, right? The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. God has been feeding them with manna. Exodus 16, the glory of God's been manifest in that. Guess what? Now they don't have water. And they start grumbling, and they start complaining, and Moses is like, you guys are driving me crazy. And you just complain. And so Jesus, the rock, there's a rock there, and Moses, this time Moses does strike the rock, and it's okay this time. First time it's okay. He strikes the rock, and water comes from the rock, he feeds them. But there we see, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not test me with your complaining. You're saying, I'm not going to provide for you, you're testing me. So that's where that's taken from, is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Our temptation is this. Okay, God, if you really are who you say you are, then you're going to provide, right? I'm going to put you to the test. You're really going to provide for me. 
the way that you said you're going to provide for me. Okay, God, you know, I've prayed in the name of Jesus, right? I've fasted. I've worked hard. And I've sacrificed. I've done everything you told me to do. Now I want my comings uppings, God, because you told me if I seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, you're going you're to provide for me, so I'm gonna, you're going to provide. Putting God to the test. God, if you want me to do X, then you need to do X. If you want me to do Y, I mean, if you want me to do X, then you need to do Y. You have to live up to your name, God. Oh, we're guilty of that. Jesus' third temptation, glory with no cross, the lust of the eyes. Satan takes him up, and, and, you know, it's hard to understand how this actually happened, right? Some kind of a vision. Satan helps him to see all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. What mountain that was, we, we don't know. And the devil says in verse 9, he says, All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say, well, Satan, it's kind of neat of you to make that offer, but you really can't come through on that. No. Somehow, Satan is so powerful, he could make this happen. Now, what does that mean? We don't really know. What does it mean, all the kingdoms of the world? Is the state going to give Jesus the world? We don't know. But there was definitely kingdoms and power and authority and glory. He says, I'll give this all. All you have to do is just a small thing. Thing, just, just worship me. That's all you have to do. Just worship me, not your Father in heaven. So Satan's saying, Look, you and I both know he's promised you an incredible kingdom. Like we know. I mean, God's promised you a kingdom. He's promised your people a kingdom. He's promised you that you're going to reign on the throne. He promised you that. Hey, look, you know what? I can make that happen for you, and you don't have to go to this place called Golgotha. You don't have to be crucified on a cross. You don't have to suffer on a cross. I'll give you that glory without the cross. I'll give you that kingdom without the cross. Jesus' response was this, obedient trust to the word of God. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, you adversary, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, as God is getting ready to take his children into the promised land, he's warning them. You know, I'm setting up a kingdom for you guys here. Here's the tendency for you. You're going to come into the land. You're going to forget that I gave you all this. And then as time passes, you're going to take matters into your own hands, and you're going to start worshiping other gods. You're going to look to these idols to be only what I can be. You're going to look for things that I've created and think that they're sustaining you when I'm the only one who can sustain you. You're going to begin to worship the creation, not the creator. And Jesus says, no, God's word says, worship the Lord your God only. Because he is the creator of the universe. He is, he's the king. All the kingdoms belong to him. Any power you have, Satan, is derivative. Satan, you know, you've promised me, you know, you, you've told me to make bread out of stone. Satan, I, I am, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for a feast greater than you can ever imagine. You're trying to give me croutons. 
And I've got some of Sam's bread coming, right? I mean, it's like, I've got this huge feast that I'm waiting for, and you're, you're offering me pittance. You're telling me I can have a kingdom? I'm going to rule on the throne of David over the entire earth for a thousand years, and then I'm going to rule in the eternal state for eternity. Who are you kidding? There's only one king of the universe to be worshipped, and that's the Father in heaven. Jesus says, no. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. And in that text in Deuteronomy, it says, do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Our temptation is what? Our temptation is to build our own kingdom, right? Jesus says there's a kingdom that's coming. I, 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 I am making you a kingdom of priests, okay? And there's a sense in which you know, the kingdom, you know, in our hearts, I, I get that, the rule of the Lord, but we're waiting for the return of Christ and for him to set up his kingdom. But in the meantime, as we serve in the kingdom of Christ, we're tempted to start building our own kingdoms, complete with idols and false gods, while ignoring the plan of God for our lives. We substitute idols for the true and living God as we seek to build our own kingdom. What do I mean by that? Well, building your own kingdom, I mean, the American dream is like some, something like that, right? And people come here to, to have the American dream. And basically what it is, is I want to have freedom from insecurity. I want to have freedom from, from fear of my life. I want to have freedom from fear of being hungry. I want to have freedom from fear of my kids not getting an education. I want to have freedom from fear, you know, of, of bad health. Not having, I mean, and so, so we start working to set up a kingdom where we have complete security. And we've arranged that all ourselves. And to get to that end, we set up idols, Right? Work is a means to that end. And so we have this idol of work that we will worship and serve so that we can get to that end. Our bank account becomes an idol because that bank account is what gives me security ultimately. As we build our kingdom, and as we build our own kingdom, we say things like this, God, I know what your word says about whatever, but I will be happier if I do it another way. I know what your, I know what your, what your word tells me, about finding my satisfaction in the creation, not the creator. But, but you know what? I'm happier the other way. God, I, I know what your word says about food, finances, relationships, protection, intimacy, the desire to achieve, create, entertainment. And all those are good in and of themselves. They're, they're not bad, right? God's created those things. But sin has twisted them and that they become the end in of themselves. They become the thing worshipped because we feel like we'll be happier if we do that. When I say worshipped, it means that that's the God and you're willing to disobey the God of the universe to obey the God of, of finances so that you can get what you want. And that life built on that is a house of cards. And Jesus says, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't obey what I say? I've said things, you don't listen to me, you don't obey me. And then he goes and tells a story about a man who builds a house on the sand. Building your house or your life on the sand is building your house or life on your own words, on your own commandments, on your own way. You are the de facto God of that universe in which you're building your house. And that's a house of cards. Jesus says, no, build your house on the rock. Me, my words, my commandments. Worship me. And when the storms of life come, the trials of life come, 
you will stand. And so Jesus gets through these three temptations. He says, away from me, Satan. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Now, I, I have some points I want to go through, points to ponder. And the last couple are a little bit of a repeat from last week, okay? Um, this one we did, we did talk about this one last week as well. All right, we, we talked about Satan today, didn't we? Demonic powers. Demonic powers are real. Satan is real. Satan is not a made-up, you know, he's not a name for this evil force in the universe, right? No, he's a real being. He is a created being. He is uh, an angel created by God who rebelled against God. So demonic powers are real and must be resisted when we fight temptation. We talked about this last week, didn't we? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against people, people with flesh and blood. Because there's people that have flesh and blood that are in the world. They're energized by the God of this world, Satan. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against what? The spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. So there is spiritual darkness. There is spiritual oppression. When we face temptation, right? Satan's been dealing with human beings for a few thousand years. He knows where we're weak. He knows how to influence us in such a way that we will choose ourselves and our idol, our de facto idol, instead of God. And he works to that end. Now, remember, I said Satan, the Satan, he's localized, but there's thousands and thousands of demons that are busy. There is a spiritual darkness. There, is, there are spiritual powers that we have to deal with. But what does James tell us? When we're facing temptations, we're not engaging them. We're submitting to the Word of God. And as we submit to the word of God, which is the antithesis or the opposite of what Satan wants, then we're resisting the devil. You're not doing, if you want to say you're doing hand-to-hand combat with the devil, well, then you're just obeying God. And James says this clearly. He says, submit yourselves to God. It is written. Submit yourselves to God. It is written, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I could a whole sermon on that. Grieve and mourn and well. Change your laughter in the morning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Understand that God created you. He knows what's best for you. His word will guide you into eternal joy. Satan's got phony baloney good times in rock and roll that's like cotton candy. It's good for about two minutes. And then you're suffering a sugar low. He doesn't offer anything that will last. But to receive what God has, you have to say in your your mind, it is written. You have to humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. As you resist the devil, remember, the front line is your heart. The front line of the battle, again, I said last week, is the flesh. Okay, the heart is influenced by the flesh. The front line is, is the heart, right? So if you're wanting to fight temptation, remember, Resist the devil by submitting to the word of God. If you're wanting to fight temptation, take care of your heart. Guard your heart. Don't open up your heart to everything that the world has to offer. Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else, guard your heart because everything flows from your heart. Now, I call the heart the warehouse of the desires. The heart is the warehouse of the desires, right? So all these desires that we have, 
And these are not bad in and of themselves, but sin twists it. Like food, finance, comfort, relationships, protection, intimacy. When I say intimacy, you know what I'm talking about. The desire to achieve, correct. These, these desires, these are good. But we have to guard that. We have to protect that. Because the world, this fallen world that we live in, wants to influence your desires and twist them even further to draw you away from God into the temptation and to sin. Right? These different things that affect social media is huge, friends. It's huge. It's massive. Movies, shows, books, streaming, binging, pop culture, which is a part of both of those, male and female relationships, ambitions, co-workers, all these things influence our desires, influence our heart. We're told to guard our heart. We guard our heart by hiding God's word in our heart, right? How do you know if something that's in the world is antithetical to God's desires for my life for joy and happiness? Well, we bounce it off the word of God. We bounce it off the word of God. Something's happened with my PowerPoint here. There we go. All right. So all those things are our desires, and we have to guard our hearts. We have to guard and protect our hearts with God's word, with prayer. These are the ordinary means of grace. So I'm teaching you how to fight temptation, okay, right now. If you're, if you're struggling in temptation, if you have areas in your life, desires that you know are twisted, and you are saying, God, I feel like I have to have this to be happy, and I know because your word says it is wrong, but God, I, I, I'm just really struggling. Here's what you need to do. God's word, hide God's word in your heart so that you won't have sin against him. We need to pray continually, pray without ceasing, Paul tells us. We need to be in fellowship with other believers to be encouraged as we fight against temptation. The first thing that people do, I'm telling you, when people withdraw from fellowship, the big question that I have is, what's going on? I mean, I don't say this to them necessarily right away. I say, what's going on in your life? What sin are you struggling with? What is the temptation that you're fighting right now? I want to help you. I want to be in your life, to be in your business. I want to see you happy and have joy the way God intended it. Gathering for worship, like right now. Godly ambitions, right? Your ambitions, which come from your desires, you know, desires to do things for God, ambitions for God. And, and, and for Christians, it's amazing, and this is kind of a side note, it's amazing how we can start out with godly good ambitions you know, I'm going to do this for God. And, and Satan in the world weasels his way in, and all of a sudden it becomes an avenue for self-glory and self-promotion. Many, many Christians fall to this. Social media doesn't help. The Lord's Supper, when we gather for the Lord's Supper every week, the gospel is front and center. We remember the death of Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. We're fighting temptation. No, I'm not going to do this. Jesus died for this. Why would I do this again? And every week we participate in the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of that. And then serving others. If you're busy serving others, that's saying, and I don't know who first said it, idle hands are the work of the devil. It's true. When you're not busy, when you're not exhausted from serving others, you have time to get into trouble. Satan has time to work in your life. So as as we're guarding our heart, as we put God's word in our heart, and as, and as Paul is talking about this in Ephesians, right, he's addressing spiritual warfare here. What does that mean to do? How do we guard our heart? We put on the full armor of God. 
What's that full armor? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that when the day of evil comes, we can stand ground after you've done everything to stand. And then we pray. He says next, pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert, always keeping on praying for the Lord's people. And the, and, and the, the last thing I'm going to bring up with respect to this is, is thanksgiving. Right? When we fall prey to temptation, when, we, when, when we're saying, God, you know what? I don't have this, and this will make me happy. This substance, this person, this monetary uh, this exchange, you know, God, if I just had this, I'd really be happy. But I don't have it. So I'm going to do what I need to do to get it. What are you saying? Oh, God, you haven't given me what I, you're not. You're not grateful to God. You're not thankful to God for what he's given you. And so how do we guard our heart and minds? We guard it with thanksgiving, right? Paul tells us this in his letter to the church of Philippi. He says, look, don't be anxious about anything. Anybody ever get anxious in temptation? You're in the midst of temptation. You're anxious. How am I going to battle this sin? How am I going to get past this? You need to have a gratitude attitude, Paul says. He says, do not be anxious about anything but everything's situation by prayer and petition. What? With thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And what's the outcome? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, which transcends all understanding, will what? Guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So if you want to fight temptation, fight temptation, you have to guard your heart. Guard your heart, be in prayer, have a heart of thanksgiving. Number three, we're getting there, guys, almost there. Remember, God is with you in your temptation. You simply need to ask for help. God is with you. God's not leaving you alone. God has not forgotten that you live in a sin-cursed world and you are in the wilderness until you die or until Jesus Christ returns, right? He's aware. He understands the temptations. They're common to all of his, his people. And he promises he will provide a way out. You have to want the way out, though. That's it right there, okay, guys? You've got to want the way out. Listen up. So often when we're fighting temptation, we have this hidden desire to hold on to it, but I really like it. I know I need to fight it. This is a temptation for me. And you're kind of like massaging it, and you kind of make backdoor ways to get into this thing that you shouldn't be a part of. You've got to hate it. And you've got to want that way of escape. Because God promises to provide the way out. He's faithful, the word says. He is faithful. This is the point from last week. Jesus gets us. Look, when we're tempted, run. Jesus gets it. Right? He's been through temptation. He's victorious. He gets it. He understands. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. This is from last week. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Well, you know, I was reading about this, and one point came up, well, well, he wasn't a woman, so how can he be tempted like a woman? He hasn't suffered the way women have had. And I'm like, really? I've said to you, there are three arenas of temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And you can put everything under that. If you, and I was thinking, as I was listening to this person talk, I was like, okay, you're a woman. You're saying that you disagree with this because Jesus wasn't a woman. Uh, I bet if we look at what you're struggling with and we break it down, 
that's going to come under one of those three temptations, one of those three areas that you have to deal with. But Jesus gets us. Aren't you so glad? We don't have a distant God that's far away, that's separated from us, but he's entered into the time and space continuum. He's taken on a human nature like us. He was tested like us. He suffered like we suffered to the point of death. He understands what we're going through. He gets us. And lastly, remember, you're loved by God even when you fail. This is so important. And I finished with like this last week, a little bit different point. Like, we're going to fail. I'm not making an excuse. I'm not saying just give in because oh, I'm going to fail anyway. I'm not saying that. You need to fight with every fiber of your being against sin and its temptation because sin is out to kill you. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, put sin to death. So we have to fight it. But we do fail. We do fail and we fail. Just remember that God loves you. He knows you. You are fully known by God. At your best, you are fully known by God. At your worst, you are fully known and you are fully loved by God. As I was studying this, this song came to my mind. I was playing it this morning. I was like, I need these words. This is a good song. A guy named Taran Wells. My wife likes him. He says, it is so unusual, it's frightening. You see right through the mess inside of me. You call me out to pull me in. You tell me I can start again. And I don't need to keep on hiding, right? You fail, you feel unworthy, you don't pray, and God says, come to me. I'm your father. I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you why you're tempted. And when you fail, remember, Jesus Christ bore that failure on the cross. Come to me and talk to me about it. He continues. He says, I am fully known and loved by the Father. You won't let go no matter what I do. And it's not the one or the other. He says, it's hard truth, it's ridiculous grace to be fully known and loved by you. I am fully known and loved by you. Last, last part I want to give you. It's so like you to keep pursuing. It's so like me to go astray. Now, I don't care how far you've gone off into temptation, how far you've fallen away from God. It's only one step back. One step back, that's all. But he goes on and he says, but you guard my heart with your truth. The kind of love, that's kind of cheesy bulletproof, and I surrender to your kindness. Friends, God loves you no matter how many times you've failed. And just because you've failed before doesn't mean he's not with you the next time you're tempted. Just because you've given in a hundred times to this temptation doesn't mean that he's going to stop. Okay, you've hit the limit. That's it. I'm done with you. That's it. No. Christ's death on the cross is greater than that. His blood is more powerful than that. The love of God is greater than that, which is why Paul could say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquerors over what? Sin, temptation, death. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, Satan, neither this present, nor the future, nor powers, neither height, nor depth, or anything else in creation, nothing will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, God loves you no matter how many times you failed. See, God is much greater than your vision or understanding of God and his love. He loves you. I don't care how far you feel like you've drifted away. You're just one step back. Amen? Amen.